0: This is Purple Radio On Demand. Hello and welcome to the second sports feed conducted virtually. My name's Sharpin. and I'll be your host for today. I'll be joined today by my co-host Archie Hodgson as well as our regular pundits Luke Power, Joshua Nichols, Ben Rochford, Gabrielle Radus, Ella Bicknell and Ed Chambers. We've got a packed show for you lined up today with boxing, golf, horse racing, football and Olympic news, as well as our new feature, any other business?
1: Cheers, Sharpie. Uh, I think there's only one place to start and, and that's with Liverpool, who were crowned Premier League champions this week for the, the first time uh, in their history um, after Chelsea saw off Manchester City 2-1 on, on Thursday night. Now, I think we've, we've got to go to Luke for this one first, the resident Liverpool fan. Just how, how excited are you um, about, about Liverpool finally being crowned champions?
2: Well, you know, I'd love to say that this is the greatest day of my life, or that it was the greatest day of my life, but it was mixed emotions, honestly. And there was a slight feeling of being underwhelmed, because it's like you've known for three months that you're going to be crowned king. And then when you're finally crowned, King, it's not that exciting. Um, I would have preferred that, I, I was actually cheering for Man City that game, because I would have preferred us against Man City, a final showdown, Divock Origi, 90th minute volley from the halfway line to win the Premier League title. Unfortunately, the narrative wasn't written in that way. A lot of people have said, hey, you can't choose how you win the Premier League. You know, 30 years it's been since we've won the, the top division title. Just take it, Luke. Take it and run with it. But Honestly, Archie, I say, I just wish we could have won it in a, a different way. That, it, it's disappointing for me, yeah. yeah.
1: it's It's been strange circumstances, obviously, with, with the lockdown, but I think one thing we, we can all agree on is just how richly deserved this title. has been. No. Josh, do you believe with the Champions League and the Premier League title now in the trophy cabinet, Jurgen Klopp is in a position to, to really build a dynasty with Liverpool?
3: I mean I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of of Jurgen Klopp and I do think he's he's the best manager in the world. And he has produced the the kind of football that is just very entertaining to watch, you know, his gegenpress and style were a lot of plaudits at, at Dortmund and he started developing it at Mainz when he was manager there as well. And it's just very attractive football. It's again at times this season maybe they haven't produced as many big wins as as maybe Man City did when they romped to the title in the last couple of seasons. But it's, it's a style of football that's very easy on the eye. And I think Jurgen Klopp, with the way that he acts with the media, the way that he puts himself across the way that he acts with other managers, he's a very likeable person. And I don't see how anybody couldn't like him. And the fact that he, that he made true to his promises, and he said, within five years, we'll win the league, and, and they 've done that in his in his fourth full season uh, it's it 's an astonishing job that he 's done there and what i do what I do take a little bit of uh, of issue of an issue with is the fact of this whole thirty years of hurt thing from for the Liverpool fans when they 've won every other trophy out there I mean, this should try and be Newcastle fans so we, we won a domestic trophy sixty sixty five years the last trophy we won was the first cup in 1969, and that's a European trophy. So, yeah, I'm not buying this 30 years of hurt thing. But, yeah, I am very happy to see Liverpool win the title. I like to see teams that haven't won things, um, won the, the league in a while, uh, win the league. I was over the moon when Leicester won. Um, and, again, I was over the moon when Liverpool won, because it's nice to know that the competition's a little bit more competitive. And, Gabe, just how impressive have you been with Jurgen Klopp's side this season?
4: Yeah, I think, I mean, it's been... Wonderful to see the development. And obviously, considering that Liverpool have always had these sort of seasons where they've been so close to, to coming. I mean, they've come second under Rafa Benitez, um, under Brendan Rogers as well. Uh, and then Gerard Julio as, well, as well, they came close, but then they've always had that drop off afterwards. And it's really a testament to the side that he's created. And the amazing thing about Jurgen Klopp is the way in which he builds teams over a, a long stretch of time the seven years at Mines, the seven, seven years at Dortmund, and now five years, or nearly. Uh, at Liverpool is um, indicative of his, his style. He, he comes in and he beds players in slowly but surely to create a team that is capable of having a two, three-year winning uh, period like you saw at Dortmund between 2011 and 2013 um, where all the players are in their heyday at the, at, right at the pinnacle of, the, uh, of his uh, sort of managerial prowess and, uh, and his managerial manipulation with that, with that squad. I think if you look at the, the Liverpool front three, they're, they're all in their late 20s. Um, Virgil van Dijks in his late 20s I mean the, the only young players really are Trent Alexander-Arnold and Joe Gomez uh, and that shows you that the squad has been built to really be the best team in the world for well I guess last season and this season and and the next and there will be a bit of a rebuilding job so I'm not sure in terms of a dynasty um, but certainly I mean for a, a sustained period of three to four years this, Liverpool seem to be almost certainly the best the best club in in, in England and, and, and the the best managed club in England and the, and, and the best uh, uh, managed club in Europe even, perhaps as well
1: yeah as you've said they've been so dominant um, this, this season but the the issue maybe they, they had is, is that there were so many competitions uh, that, that they were competing for obviously they they went to to Asia to, to compete for the Club World Cup before Christmas so that led to a real um, fixture congestion for them which means that one competition they won't win this year is, is the FA Cup which returned uh, at, at the weekend um, Luke you'd probably say that the favourites in, in all four ties progressed but Manchester United and uh, Arsenal certainly didn't make light work of it did they?
2: No certainly not and I think especially with Arsenal we've seen Sheffield United be with all respect rather dreadful since the return and they, they were dismantled very easily by Manchester United, 3-0 in the league. And I'd say I was impressed with Arsenal because they've had their own difficulties. You know, they haven't lost much under Arteta, but they've also struggled since um, the resumption of the Premier League to get going. And so you have to take your hats off to them. But you say to do it in such late fashion with Danny Ceballos' late goal, probably not sealed in the way that they would have liked. I think Manchester City... Will be very pleased with uh, how things went down against Newcastle. I know Josh will be very disappointed um, with the 2 0 scoreline, and maybe they could have brought some semblance of success to St James's Park after the 65 years. What I will say is that there's no guarantees that Man City is still going to go and win the FA Cup. We cannot call it at all. And you've got this incredible now um, London and Manchester divide which will obviously have a lot of regional pride and everyone will be spurring on their team, their city. But I really like what Chelsea have been doing recently. And so I think they could be, if you want to call them the dark horses of the FA Cup, if we move into the later stages of the competition.
1: Yeah, and Luke, jo- um, sorry, Josh, Luke mentioned um, Newcastle's defeat there to, to Manchester City. Yeah. I s- suppose... It was a bit of a one-sided affair. You can't have too many complaints, but there was that that one guilt edged opportunity for Dwight Gale just after he came on to to equalise. Do you do you think that if he put that away, then it, it could have been a, a different outcome?
3: Well, I mean, obviously, obviously, it would have it would have changed the match. You know, you miss you miss a setter five yards out with a relatively empty net, um, and you put you put it over the net. It, it, in it would have been one-one, and it would have changed the tie because Man City would have then tried to come at Newcastle a little bit more, might have produced a few little gaps for Newcastle to maybe counter-attack into. We've seen Newcastle be quite clinical on the counter-attacks in, in recent years, especially against some of the bigger teams there. Uh, when you look at some of the results that, that Newcastle have got this season in the league, you know, beating Manchester United, scoring twice at Old Trafford as well, um, beating Spurs... Um, drawing with Manchester City earlier this season at Saint James's Park, Newcastle can score goals against the bigger teams, and it was a little bit, a little bit disheartening really to see the way that the team was set up in the first half. As a Newcastle United fan, you know it's our first quarter final since 2006, and that was the way that we set up just to let Man City play the ball around us to have as many chances as they want. And we did defend pretty well for, for the majority of the first half, but I've got to say it was. absolutely dreadful decision and it was a very very bad game for Fabian Schaar in in the hole uh, when he just bundled over uh, Gabriel Jesus in the box I think it was gave away the penalty that that eventually led to Manchester City going 1-0 up just individual errors I think was this were the stories of of Newcastle's night and yeah it was disappointing as a fan to see the way that we went about the first half but signs of encouragement in the second half but yeah again individual mistakes and yeah you can't really can't really excuse that sort of miss
1: yeah as you said it it was a very negative uh, performance from Newcastle in the first half but I, I think um Sam Maxim especially he he looked um like he was providing Newcastle with a lot more um get forward in in the second half do you think that he could be a key player for you going forward
3: in in the second half, yeah, he was he was much much better. But I don't think he retained the ball at all in the first half when when he had it, made made a plethora of mistakes. But he is he is our most exciting player. He is our most talented player. Um, and the, there's a reason why he's been talked about in, in all of the in all of the media. There's there's a reason why every Newcastle game there's a highlight spot on on Alan Maximum because he's exciting to watch. He's very skillful. He's got a lot of flair. He knows when to produce it as well. Um, they were talking uh, during the, the FA Cup coverage of, of the fact that he's progressed as a player, and, and I do agree with that. At the start of the season, he was maybe doing a little bit of fancy fly here and there, um, not potentially in the, in the best positions. But as the season's developed, you saw that incredible uh, Maradona turn against Manchester, eh, not Manchester City, against Aston Villa um, to, to play to play a, a, a player through on the, on the right-hand side, to play Manquillo through. And he's, he is developing into a player that is less selfish, is, is bringing other players into the game. And Newcastle can really build around that. I have to say, though, um, I echo the view of, of, of Shearer and that if Newcastle don't end up getting taken over, I do feel like other teams will be in for Sam Maximum because he's that kind of exciting player, could play in a top-six club and he'll, he want, he'll need better players around him to, to help him progress to the next level. He's 23 years old. He, he'll be wanting to play Champions League football because he is that, that standard of player.
1: And, Gabe, as, as um, Luke alluded to, it's pretty hard to, to split the four teams um, remaining in, in the FA Cup. He, he suggested maybe Chelsea are, are dark horses for it. Do you, do you see uh, any particular favourites?
4: Um, I think Chelsea, Chelsea have really done uh, exceptionally well, or Frank Lampard rather, um, since the restart has been the way he's used substitutions. Um, I think he's done that better than any other manager in the league thus far. Um, against Villa, uh, they were obviously 1-0 down the first game back and the two quick substitutions really changed that game there. Against City, Willian came on, scored the penalty. Um, and again, here he wasn't afraid to make a triple substitution to to change the game in in Chelsea's favour. And Leicester did have the upper hand before that. Um, and obviously, I think in the new era of five substitutions and six, I guess if you go into uh, um, extra time, uh, it is very. Uh, it, I mean, the ability to use subs and the way in which you you kind of change formation and change uh, personnel is massively more important, more so now than it was uh, pre. Um, the coronavirus um, sort of suspension. So I think that leaves Chelsea in a, in, a, in a really good position, despite the fact that they were pretty drab in parts against uh, against Leicester uh, in what was actually a really underwhelming game in, in, in general overall. Um, United obviously have the hunger of trying to, to, to try and, uh, and, and get that title under Ole, um, but I think I can't really see any any, any way anyway past uh, City. Um, I mean, they're just relentless. The way in which they sort of completely tore apart—was uh, it? Did they tear apart um, Villa on the uh, midweek or beforehand? they tore apart aside side um, completely. As the name escapes me, but anyway, um, the uh, the team were uh, completely annihilated, which is uh, indicative of how strong they are at the moment. And. and Arsenal, despite the sort of scrappy win against Sheffield United, uh, who have not been great since the restart, um, and Sheffield United kind of gifted, were gifted a goal from poor Arsenal defending, and and, and Ceballos really say it spared um, Arsenal's blushes. I think City of the four sides of those four very very large clubs, um, which kind of also is a is another uh, sort of note to how um, the clubs have obviously taken the, the the FA Cup seriously this this year, because I mean. Um, despite what people say about people disregarding it and clubs disregarding the the FA Cup, there are the four of the top six clubs in, in, in England are are playing in the semi-finals. I think City of those four will uh, are, the, are your best bet for sure.
1: And if if we return our focus to the the league, um, obviously this season's race for Europe has been slightly unusual in the sense that fifth place could actually end up being a champions league spot pending the the appeal of of manchester city's two year champions league ban um, but presuming that, that there are just the, the traditional um, top four spots up, up for grabs who do you see taking the, the those final three spots josh
3: in terms of in terms of the the top four i think you've got to you've got to look at um You've got to look at City are definitely, definitely in there. I'd say Leicester are definitely in there. And then you've got to look at, at, at Chelsea, Man United. Um, Man United's have had a bit of a, a resurgence, to be honest. I think they've used the lockdown very well um in kind of regrouping and coming back. Um and then you look outside outside of the uh out of the top four, um, you've got to look at Wolves, really, because Sheffield United have completely dropped off since the since the restart yeah. happened, and that 's got to dent their confidence to be honest and and wolves have have come back pretty strong um looked like they have kind of built on on their momentum before that they they 're using the fact that the uh, europa league and and all of that is going to be played out um after after the uh, domestic seasons and uh, I think man United are doing the same th- uh, man United Man City doing the same thing. So we've got a very strong end to the season for those teams in the in the top six. It'll be a very very interesting race, and I and, and I do think you could well see Wolverhampton right right up there in in amongst it.
1: You mentioned Wolves and their involvement in the Europa League this season. I know before the the start of the season there were lots of questions about whether their squad would would be able to to you know um, successfully maintain a Premier League challenge as well as competing in in Europe. Um, so. Luke, just how impressive would it be if they were to, to finish in the top four this season?
2: Well, absolutely massive, because how many times have we seen sides qualify for Europe and then drop off in a subsequent season? The most recent example being Burnley, where they were suddenly you know, facing a relegation scare just a year after finishing seventh. But with Wolves, I think the difference with them is that they have such a real long-term project going on. And I mean, uh, Jorge Mendes is a divisive figure at the best of times. And a lot of people will say, well, maybe it's slightly unfair that he's sending so many uh, fresh European recruits to Wolves. But they've really built an excellent side. And Jimenez, who you know, some people you know, say sometimes maybe he doesn't score enough goals, he's been exemplary this season and hit, hitting double figures for several years in a row. So I, I, I really think that it's not as big of a shock as some people would frame it for Wolves to be in the uh, race for the top four. However, on paper, of course, they're nowhere near as strong as the other sides. What I would say is, though, apart from Chelsea, you have quite a young upcoming side. I don't think that many of the top four, top six sides have particularly exciting squads for future years. So I, I can see Wolves not only doing it this season, but even in the next three, four years doing the same. Because watching Man City against Chelsea, even though Man City are so imperious, I thought Fernandinho, Looked a goner. He was so exposed by Mason Mount, just the kind of pacey player that Wolves like to have. Um, Arsenal, their youth prospects at the best of times, I don't think are that impressive. So I think this is something that Wolves could really build with. And alongside Leicester City, I think they could start this reformation of a new top eight in the Premier League and we might be seeing a more competitive era at the top of the table.
4: What I, what I would probably counter Luke's point there, if I could jump in. Um... I I totally respect that. I think Wolves are probably the best team of that sort of group. If you recall, called Burnley, Wigan, Birmingham City, to have clubs that have got to Europe and then dropped down and, and Newcastle, sort of Newcastle <laughs> um, that uh, that would um, those teams that have really struggled through through lack of depth really when, when coming into Europe. Wolves need to have a really flexible transfer policy and and, and transfer budget coming into next summer because they will suffer the same consequences that other teams have suffered, despite the fact that they have a very, very good um, a very, very good uh, top 12, 13 players. Um, past that, they won't be able to survive a, a European campaign and, and a Premier League campaign. So I think it's massively key that they, they invest. They've got some, some really good players. I think, if anything, probably cash in on Dama Traore. And and use that money to to service other other areas. I mean, the, the partnership between Traore and Jimenez um, has been electric uh, this season. I think they've only got they've got the maybe scored combined to score ten goals, which is three shy of the of the Shearer uh, Sutton uh, combination of Blackburn in the in, in the early nineties. So I mean, it's a, it's been a really good partnership, but. um, it might be worth sacrificing that partnership in order to, for the greater good of, of the world squad, um, because to have 13 players is not going to cut it in Europe. And I, I mean, they are the best team outside that top four in terms of getting into the, into the Champions League places. I mean, Leicester are dropping like a stone. So, I mean, uh, you'd hope for, for their sake that they're able to, to, to use their, their sort of their points at the moment they have 55 to kind of stay in there. But, um, but Wolves look the best and look the most, the more the most likely uh, club to sort of surpass, uh, to surpass Leicester or at least take that fifth spot, which will be a Champions League spot if uh, City are disqualified. And they will really need to reinvest, otherwise they will suffer. Despite the the obvious uh, benefits and uh, and tactical masterclasses shown by Nuno Espirito Santo um, and the Wolves squad this season.
1: Now, Ed, if we touch on uh, touching the other end of the table, uh, it, it looks like the relegation battle is, is now boiled down to, to six sides. Um, Norwich, Philip, Bournemouth, who currently occupy the bottom three spots, as well as West Ham, Watford and Brighton. Of, of these sides, who do, you, who do you fancy to actually beat the drop?
5: Well, thank you, Archie. You've just woken me up there. I was miles away. Um, I mean, looking at the, the situation as it is at the moment, um, I mean, Bournemouth have kind of got themselves dragged into a, into, a, into a battle. West Ham as well. I think those two are the ones that really stick out as kind of surprising in terms of the structure of the clubs. We often, I think, West Ham with the stadium they have, Bournemouth with the, the setup they've had for, for quite a long period of time, are probably clubs that you'd say shouldn't really be there. Um, I don't like the look of Bournemouth's form currently, actually. I feel, I feel like they're, they're sort of a club potentially there has been... For a number of seasons, a lot of good performances, but it seems like they're sort of running out of end of the road in terms of ideas. I don't know what other people think about that. But, um, and and West, Ham, West Ham as well. I think some of the performances of late have been pretty lacklustre. Uh, Norwich seems to be pretty down and out, I think, at this stage. Difficult for them to, to come back from even six points behind Villa. So I, I, I do fancy Villa to pull something out in the last few weeks, but um, it's, uh, it's, it's much tighter at that point of the table than it is at the top. And
1: how have you actually found watching football games again? Obviously, um, all all of the games have been behind closed doors. It's been well documented how surreal it's it's been for the players. Do you you think it's had much of an impact on on the, the way the results have gone?
5: Well, I think actually what was interesting about the game yesterday, I missed a little bit of the conversation about the FA Cup, but I felt like Newcastle against Man City at St James's Park was certainly one of those games where it was actually striking the crowd because the crowd would have played some kind of part. And in the FA Cup in particular, it's something that relies much more on momentum in that developing an upset. You can't really develop that same sort of um, sort of amphitheatrical atmosphere, if you like, which St James's Park would have provided. I think in a lot of the games, though, it has obviously it does favor the top sides in the same way that going going away from home is is far more of an easy prospect when you haven't got the fans behind you. So it does make an impact. I think watching the games uh, it's one of those things as a Spurs fan which I know Gabe is as well. Um, it's been a bit of a been a bit of a sort of eye opener. sort of lockdown was good for for not many things, but one of the things it was it sort of uh, made me forget just how bad the football was Tottenham were playing before lockdown and uh, efforts, I think, in uh, early games. But um, no, I think, I think in general, I think it certainly favours away teams in terms of hostile environments are completely counteracted in that sense.
1: Thank you to Ed, Josh, Luke and Gabe for, for your thoughts. And now I'm going to pass back to Ben, who is moving on to horse
0: racing. Thanks, Archie. Now, I'm joined by Ella Bicknell and Ben Rochford for this segment. Um, We had Royal Ascot last week, which is probably the pinnacle week of flat horse racing in this country. I'd just like to go for some of the major races of the week and see what your thoughts on it are. So we started off the week with the uh, Queen Anne Stakes, um, where Circus Maximus was a narrow winner, beating John Gosden's Terra How good a horse is Circus Maximus and how good a jockey is Ryan Moore?
6: Yeah, um, this was, it was a really, really good race to um, kind of start the festival, really. Um, and it was kind of a, re- a real, a real good, a good start for Ryan Moore. He was really in form coming to the festival. Um, it was a really tight race in a tight market, really, against Terrebellum. Um, but yeah, it is kind of testament to how good Ryan Moore is. Um, being able to really kind of retain... Uh, Change his crown twelve months on. Uh, like I said, in a really squash market, drifting uh from really like tight odds to four to one. So it was yeah, real testament to Ryan Moore and how he did well really to beat Frankie Titori, to which was good.
7: But talking about how football matches have been without having crowds there, it's the same reaction to Ascot as well. There was no crowds cheering the horses and the jockeys on, and saying that not having the Queen there either, it's it's part what makes it such a yeah. massive event it always amps up the pressure amps up the adrenaline and I think it definitely made a difference on what results we could have got if there wasn't a coronavirus
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's definitely true Ella we saw a lot of the week the favourites were particularly good or the, the uh, horses that were on sh- who had short odds were particularly uh, good on their form we move on to probably my favourite race of the week which is the King's Stand Stakes, which Batash won um, trained by Charles Hill Five to six favourite proved to be a cut above his rivals as he cruised to victory to land his first Royal Ascot success. Ben, how good a sprinter is he?
6: Yeah, it was um, it was a really really impressive win. Really, um, uh, like I said in, in the feed before, like his um, his bitter rival Blue Point uh, wasn't running this year, who'd who'd uh, won twice before, so he was a real kind of favourite to win. Um, Jim Crowley on board is a really, really fantastic jockey. Um, it, yeah, there was kind of it was only one. It was a one-horse race, this really. And like I said, it, was, it had taken a very brave man to bet against him. It was it was it was, yeah, it was a blistering speed to win with. Really. It was a fantastic race. And we move on to the Prince of Wales Stakes. John Gosden
0: got uh, John Gosden's Lord North was a runaway w- winner as a five-to-one shot, scooted clear of his rivals to claim Group One glory in impressive fashion. He wasn't the favourites win but how sort of good a trainer john golston in the sense that he's able to get these short price runners even even though they're not favourites but these runners who are not necessarily favourites to win these big races
6: uh yeah it, yeah it's it's big testament to him really um this this was all eyes were kind of on japan um to see if he could win do it really again he was really good at goodwood last year um and yeah there's a lot of attention towards him as the as the market reflected that really, but no, it is testament to the talent of John Gosden really, um, and to get this 5-1, I think 5-1 winner on Lord North, and james it, it's not just John Gosden as well, James Doyle was incredible on, um, on Lord North, a really good turn of foot towards the end and just kept going really, and yeah, kind of testament to both of them there, but the first victory at the top level, it's fantastic really.
0: Why do you think uh, Japan flopped in that event
6: then? Um, it's a good question. It's a good question, really. Um I mean the conditions the conditions weren't right for him to be fair. Um I, I was I was quite surprised that he did lose. Um I was a really big Japan fan. I watched him at Goodwood last year, I was really, really keen for it. But yeah, I'm not too sure really. I think it's it was more testament just to James Dore really on board Lord, Lord Lord North. Really really had a plan, knew what to do. Just better, better on the day. And we
0: move on to again a John Goldstone winner, probably the biggest race of the week, the Ascot Gold Cup. Stradivarius recorded the third victory, and I repeat it again third victory in the Gold Cup as a superstar stayer blitzed his rivals in an emphatic, in an emphatic victory in the staying show piece at Royal Ascot. Held off the pace by Frankie Tottori, the but then he just pushed the button, didn't he, Ben and Ella? He just pushed the button when he was ready to go. And that was. Yeah, that was just incredible to watch. I mean, he just, he had the horse and the bridle and then he just let him go when he needed to. How impressive a ride is that for Frankie Dettori and how easy do you think that horse is to ride, Ben?
6: Um, yeah, I, it, was, it was an absolute box office performance, really. Um, just a standout performance from Frankie Dettori. Um, again, testament to John and again at, in such like an unorthodox season to get Stratoreas ready, um, coming off the back of a loss back... Um, recently but not at his favourite distance but no back at his favourite distance here it really, it really is testament and it was just a fantastic performance like, like you said when he let him go there was absolutely no stop of him he was kind of Frankie was kind of like motionless coming up to the top and he just kind of, And when he let him go he went and there was absolutely no stopping him no, no, no chance whatsoever
0: um, how have how have people been involved at home, Ella? How have they got um, involved with the Royal Ascot spirit, despite not being able to attend?
7: Well, of course, it's all been broadcast um, on television. Um, but a lot of people, because Ascot's famous for its hats, just so many people have got involved in that way. So... Um, Twenty-four thousand pounds were raised by people decorating rainbow hats on behalf of NHS charities. Um, also, some people, quite interestingly, have been making fascinators related to household items. I'm not sure how you guys would feel about wearing a loo roll fascinator, but
0: I, think <laughs> I don't think I'd, I don't think I'd be, I'd be able to pull off a fascinator even if it wasn't made out of loo roll. I, I think you could, but I think you look really good. <laughs> <laughs> I came into I came into a a
7: lockdown haircut. Yeah.
6: <laughs> well
0: it's got a bit long, I have to admit, but um <laughs> yeah, I mean it's- gra- it's great to- not at all it's It's great that people are still getting involved in these sports despite not being able to attend because at the end of the day, sport was one of those big things that we were missing during the lockdown. I think it's great for people's mental health that they've got something to watch on t v if even if it's something as as simple as watching people kick a ball around as I call football or um. <laughs> race a horse around the circle or straight that's exactly it's simple as that but it's it's great for people's mental health anyway we move on to the commonwealth cup which was uh won by clive cox's golden horde the five point shot pulled clear of american rider kim Mari, the closing stages ben golden horde is a good horse but is he is he under appreciated by the general public
6: yeah yeah absolutely there, were, there wasn't a lot of um, wasn't a lot of tension going in, into the race really um i really, i really, really like this horse it was really really emphatic one as well um but i think it, there's a lot of testament to give say, to adam kirby as well the jockey it was really like you really know how to he really 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 well timed it well it, was, it was, and that kind of partnership uh with trainer clive Cox as well kind of it, it shows it um but no, yeah, he's a bit underappreciated, but can, I think he'll hopefully win um, the, the July Cup in Newmarket coming up. So um, it's a really good chance there to kind of hit the ground running for mascot uh, and kind of push on, really.
0: The next big race is the Coronation Stakes. And I know, Ben, that you this was one of your favourite races of the week. Alpine Star was a runaway w- winner, ridden again by Frankie Dottore.
6: Yeah.
0: She beat Sharing by the four lengths and quadrilateral finished third. Alpine Star, what do you think she could be aimed at in the future?
6: What sort of races? Um, well, yeah, it's good you mentioned this. It was a fantastic. It was one of my favourite races of the week, really. Um, and like Frankie Tator was on fire that day. I think this is, that that was his. I think it was his second win of the day. Um, yeah, I really, fanci- I really fancy Alpine Star for the Oaks at the weekend. Um, I know we'll get onto that in a bit, but a really really good ride. Um, and for trainer Jessica Carrington as well, a really talented trainer. Um, and so, uh, I think Alpine's followed in the footsteps of her half-sister, Alpha Centauri. So it's, it's in the family. Um, it's a it run, yeah. And a, re- a really, really fancy for the Oaks at the weekend.
0: Speaking about quadrilateral, she was the favourite for this race. She was the favourite for the Thousand Guineas. Is, she, is that it for her? Do you think she's, she's not going to go any further on the road to success?
6: Yeah, I think it was it was a really really dis- disappointing race again in the Guine- in the Guinea's and at Ascot. Um it, it's tough to come back from that. It was a kind of like it was a do or die race, I think, at Ascot for quadrilateral. Um but it was re- it was really, really inconvincing. Um I didn't I wasn't that keen for it at the start. It was, I mean, it was a two to one, a really, really short price. Um, wasn't for me and yeah, it kind of proved me right really. I,
0: yeah. And finally, the last race I want to discuss is the St James's Palace Stakes, which was again won by John Gosden. Palace Pier produced a fine burst of speed to win to win it to edge out Pinatubo in a sparkling finish. Is Palace Pier four from four races, which is he's unbeaten? Is he going to be one of the greats? Do we
6: think? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've not heard much news about what's next for Palace Pier. I've been trying to, I've been looking up and stuff, but I've not heard much about it, uh, which I'm quite surprised about, but I'll have to do some more research on it. But no, that was a fantastic race, honestly. That was one of my favourite races of the week. Um, I really fancy Palace Pier. Um, I watched him at Newcastle early in the month in the handicap race. Um, and he really, really great turn of foot at the end. And that was exactly the same in this race. Uh, and I'm frankly, he's totally on board as well. There was that, that like, got frankie's hat trick on that um yeah it's a fantastic race frank just class from frankie really and again um john gosman as well absolutely fantastic we move
0: on to the standout performance of the week for ella what was your standout performance of the week in terms of horses
6: or jockeys
7: definitely has to be frankie just
6: frankie frankie Tori, yeah he, he was he was exceptional this like to say there was no crowd and stuff his kind of personality shone through really um you can't keep him away from the headlines really and he He's, he's got to be the standout jockey with the most wins. The hat-trick on the last day, he, um, he has to be. But Jim Crowley as well, he was a fantastic... Jim Crowley got some fantastic wins. Um, he got a 12-1 winner on Hookham and Kaluzy at 9-2, nine, nine which was a really, really good win in the Britannia. So, Jim Crowley as well, but yeah, you can't, you can't look away from Frankie Ittutori ever. He's always in, always in the spotlight. And what was the biggest
0: upset of the week, Ben? What was the we all like an upset in sport? Who was the underdog that came through and shone through?
6: I mean, it has to be like the hundred, <laughs> the hundred fifty one to one, hundred fifty one uh, to one winner, Nando Nando Parado, which I think is such a cool name as well. Um, but yeah, um, that was that was a fan, such a big upset. Um, I couldn't really believe what was happening when I was watching it. Um, but again, it like just in the Commonwealth Cup the day before, it was Adam Kirby and Clive Cox that partnership again. Um, it's a, not really surprising in a way, but. Yeah, that that it was tremendous. Um, I think it's right like the biggest winner in two hundred years of Ascot. If I'm
0: yes, it is the biggest winner in Ascot's history. Yeah. What I liked about that was that the somebody bet put, put a ninety p bet on, and came out with ninety five around ninety five pounds, yeah. uh, because they uh they put a bet on because their Nando's was late the day before.
6: <laughs> yeah, it's it's incredible, really. Like it's what we needed at Ascot really that week. It was a weird week, but like something like that kind of rounded off really fantastic.
0: Now we look forward to the Epsom Oaks and Derby this weekend. Ella, what's your predictions for the for the Derby?
7: Well, there's 17 horses in the mix. Um, the favourite is English King. And I think it just goes to show that 30% of bettors have backed um, that horse, that billy. So it's very, very strong odds, um, five to two. Um, but then again, the um, second favorite is Kameko at nine to two odds, and ten percent of um, bets have gone that way. So could be could be close, I'd say. However, I'm not a big horse race fan. I'm really sorry, Ben. Um, uh-huh. However, I have heard of Camelot, who won um, who won the Epsom yeah. Derby back in 2012, and English King is. Yeah. That's, that the, that's why I was
6: going to go on to say, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's got, she's got, it's got a really big chance in which kind of wing I really like her. A lot of people have kind of been quite critical of her and the short, like, and with the odds being really, really short, um, like, he, he, he ran it, like, in Lingfield a couple of weeks ago when it would not convince me, but like people were saying, like oh, the po- it was poor competition and stuff. Um, but no, you're absolutely right. Camelot, uh, I think he's a sire, so it's within the family to win. Um, and I, I really fancy it. A lot of people have been putting off, but I also there's another horse as, as well. I said to you, I said this to you Ben a couple of days ago. Vatican City as well. Yeah. Uh, I said this moved in from 16 to one to um, to eight to one um, in in like in the space of a couple of days. So a really, really big uh market mover um and for trainer aiden o'brien as well looks a really really good price
7: love the name name vatican city yeah it's
6: cool cool. isn't it it really is cool
7: about the other names they've all got quite a fantasy medieval so like for epson there's highland chief a possible enemy for english king just seems quite medieval (laughs) that um mythical's another one armory is another one and then in the oaks gold one queen daenerys I bet the person that's named that horse didn't watch the final season of Game of Thrones.
0: (laughs) That's brilliant. And finally, just your tip for the Epsom Oaks, both of you. Who do you think is going to win? Who do you think is going to get placed?
7: I always go for the favourite. I just, I'm I'm not a lucky person generally. So I just, I just kind of go for what everyone recommends and the favourite in this one's um, love.
0: And Ben, if you were going to pick an outside horse to win, who would you pick?
6: Yeah, um, I really like uh, passion. It's um now it's 60, market again, big, big market move from twenty five to one to sixteen, so we'll see. But I I do I, I tend to agree with Ella. I do like love as well. A Guinea's winner, um and should do really well here. Yeah.
0: Thanks to both of you. It's been a brilliant segment. Um I'm now going to uh I'm now going to stay on the line and I'm going to speak to Ed Chambers to discuss the golf. Ed, how are you?
5: I'm very well, Ben. I enjoyed that segment very much. I'm not uh, And there are other people in our Zoom call who know less about horse racing than uh, that last segment show. But that was uh, very interesting. Can I get some lifelines for some of the questions? They're really good. They're to the point. I do get asked the audience at one point or something.
0: OK, yeah, you can. <laughs> so for, for anyone, didn't, we've had two golf uh, competitions in the past two weeks, both on the PGA Tour. Yes. For anyone who didn't watch the RBC Heritage, which Web Simpson won. Can where you were this? you? Yeah, where were you? I mean, it's a great. where were you, of course? I mean, you've got to be up on a Sunday night. Uh, yeah. Uh, it finished at one o'clock in the morning. I was it was a late it. finish. And um, my mum came and I said, she said, what the hell are you doing? I said, I'm watching the golf. And she's like, why? Anyway, um, can you give us a recap of the final round?
5: Yeah, for sure. Um, So this was, this was a win for, for Webb Simpson. This is casting our minds back to father's day. And um, yeah, as you say, it was a little bit too late for me to catch the, catch the end of it, but it was a kind of birdie blitz on the, on the back nine from Webb Simpson. Um, It was a a low scoring event in the end. Um, Harbour town where it's set out in South Carolina on the coast can sometimes with the wind be slightly more unpredictable. The greens can get a little bit firmer, but it was pretty soft conditions and uh, Simpson fired in five, uh, five, Five birdies in six holes towards the, in the, through the back nine. So yeah, it, it allowed him to sort of create that little bit of space. And from, from then on, Abraham Anser of Mexico tried to come back, but it was a little bit too, too little, too late uh, for Simpson. It's quite incredible
0: that Abraham Anser is in the world's top 30 without mm. ever actually recording a win on the PGA Tour. There's been a bit of controversy over the fact that the PGA Tour is going ahead and the mm. European Tour isn't, and they're giving world ranking points. What's your
5: yeah. view on that? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, um, as you say, there's, there's no real way for, 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 um, for, for golfers based in Europe to be competing at the moment. And what it's meaning is that by losing world ranking points, you sort of uh, become uh, disqualified, not disqualified, but you, you lose your position in some of the key events coming later in the year, um, particularly the majors The masters comes to mind you know, for next year, or for this year and next year. Actually, that's not true. Masters invitation has already gone out for this year, but for next year, um, that may be that may become an issue. So um, the European tour is going to get going in sort of early, early July. I think it's two, two weeks now. But um, yeah, I think this has certainly angered a lot of um, European golf it kind of sets up. There's been a lot over the sort of last couple of months talk about a potentially global tour. Um, and sort of increasing the game because it is so focused in America and actually doesn't really represent the the wider spread of golf. And I think this is kind of quite testament to that. And there's a need for some kind of equality. It's just not right. And it's just not fair that European golfers who can't play because of a global pandemic are are losing their places in potentially tournaments that they would have earned when everyone was playing.
0: Yeah, it was quite interesting when I looked at the
5: breakdown of the vote of giving
0: of whether to give the go ahead of world ranking points. It was mm. only Keith Pelle, the European Tour of chief exec, who voted against it. All the others voted in favour. Mm. Um going back to Webb Simpson, how big a win is this for him in terms of making the Ryder Cup? I mean, he's he's now in the world's top twenty.
5: Well, I mean, the main question in that question actually is whether the Ryder Cup's gonna go ahead, but we can we can park that. Uh I think He's now fifth in the FedEx Cup standings. Uh, Webb Simpson at the last Ryder Cup was the USA's standout performance. And I think it was testament to Jim Furyk's really rubbish captaincy, the fact that Webb Simpson only played three times um, around that venue. I mean, Webb Simpson is a great foursomes player. And, you know, when you talk about alternate shot, Simpson's very straight, very accurate. Um, His iron game is exceptional and he's, he's a really good putter. Um, and actually, one of the reasons he doesn't win so much, you would say, is because of his, he's not as long as some of the other players. And golf courses can be set up for the likes of McElroy, for Johnson and Brooks Koepka. Um, but I think I looked at Webb Simpson's finish at, at Whistling Straits, which is where this would have been in the 2015 PGA Championship. And I think he was inside the top, the top 15, actually. So it's certainly a venue which suits him. Um, and I think he would definitely be, I think he's probably booked his place if this Ryder Cup does go ahead, but if not, he's definitely someone that you want to pick.
0: Is there the potential, talking about the Ryder Cup, for it to um, be postponed, but teams to be picked a bit like what happened after 9-11? The, the uh, match was postponed a year, but the teams still remain the same?
5: Yeah, um, I think the Ryder Cup, not a lot has been said from people around from both sides of you know, the PGA and the European Tour have kind of kept quite shtum about the Ryder Cup. They've not wanted to say much. It's kind of come down to the players. Um, the players have pretty much said that they don't want to do it. Uh, without the fans, it's pointless. It really, it lacks the whole raison d'etre of the Ryder Cup is the atmosphere it creates. The engagement with the fans is pointless. It's just like a like a weekend game. And most of those guys live in Florida anyway. I think Brooks Koepka has been the most forceful, saying that even if it went ahead, he'd actually boycott it just because it seems completely redundant. So the only people that it kind of comes down to the financial side of it, um, whether that's, that's what they want to do. But I think that would be where they look to. I think they would, depending on how many more events we get in, I think they would still do the same cutoff points. And as you say, maybe translate, but this is unprecedented time. So, uh, Steve Strick has already changed his team so that there's now six automatic qualifiers and six picks at the end, which has never been seen that many. Um, But, but yeah, in terms of picking that, I I can't really see a situation where they do the Ryder Cup without fans. But, um, yeah, I think it'll probably be postponed a year.
0: Um, Going back to Harbour Town links, we Mm -hmm. discussed, I discussed with Archie last week, the problem of people being able to hit the ball too far. And that's been an issue in terms of it's become a driver wedge game. Mm-hmm. Do you think Harpertown Town Links was able to combat the players' lengths and instead encourage shot making, good passing? Do you agree with this assessment?
5: Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. I mean, I think, I think these kind of courses are um, quite few and far between. Mainly just because of it's it's about it's about course layout, really. I mean, there's a lot of courses that are similar length but would have absolutely no protection because the bunkering and the water is not in the right place to actually encourage players to hit iron off the tee. I mean, even still at Town, there's sort of 350 yard holes where the shambo now is hitting, hitting drive and trying to drive it on. And that is against the spirit of the course. Um, And in terms of people hitting it too long, there's no real debate to be had about it. People are hitting it too long. Um, Golf courses that were once played even 15 years ago are completely redundant. They offer no defense. There's no test at all for players. Um, And I think, golf has really got to I mean the RNA is really now looking into it it's probably a bit late I mean people have been saying it for a long time but they need to do something because time and time again we're seeing golf courses which are just drive a wedge drive a wedge and you don't see players hit seven irons to greens and there's no as you say the right word is shot making and that really has to come back I think not only if golf is going to be competitive and actually offer a wide range of players to compete but actually who's was going to have any kind of product because for whatever people in golf say it's not impressive to see someone just hit 350 yard drives and wedge hole after hole after hole it's pointless you need to have people hitting you know seven irons and woods into par fives which hasn't been seen for ages so there's lots to be said for that.
0: yeah i mean i wholeheartedly agree i think the thing about what made harbour links so good i mean there was one hole that bryson de chambeau was said i'm gonna hit it too long with my driver so he was playing yeah. freewood to try and drive it, which is a joke. Yeah, yeah, but the one good yeah. thing about Harbour Town was that there was quite a few dog legs. So mm-hmm. you had to put it in the right side of the fairway. You couldn't just be in on the fairway, which a lot of courses, even if, if you're on the fairway, it's, it's, you're fine. And also what they did there, which is quite good, they made the rough quite short. So that if mm-hmm. you basically went offline, your ball would basically go into the trees. So that, I thought that was sort of it. There was a, there was a premium uh, uh, based on accuracy, which I yeah. thought was really good for the week. Yeah. Another of the main storylines, Pine Week, was unfortunately Nick Watney was the first player to test positive for COVID-19 mm-hmm. on the PGA Tour. How secure do you think the bubble is the PGA Tour is attempting to create?
5: Oh, It's not secure at all. I think there's been a lot of, um, <laughs> I think when everyone was reading the kind of the protocol that the PGA Tour set up, and I think they have sort of followed, they've tried to, the the officials have tried to follow it through, but the players have shown really no interest in it at all. I mean, there's been reports of players just going out to the local town for dinner. Um, there's been no there's been no real bubble, I think. And, and yeah, Watney's the first one. There's been well, Webb Simpson himself actually pulled out of uh, this week's tournament. Um, and yeah, I think there's there's a lot of players saying that they're you know ignoring the messages that they're getting from the officials. There is no real, um, real bubble, I don't think. I think some people are still social distancing, but quite a lot of the players have kind of got really no interest in it. So, um, yeah, I think this is, this is always going to be the way, but I think it's going to be in the next couple of weeks. I think if this continues, it's going to be even more significant. Um, we move on to the Travelers Championship this week, this
0: week, which is more of a driver wedge sort of course, as you, yeah. we were talking about. Um, Dustin Johnson won his 21st PGA Tour title. And he's an atypical driver-wedge player.
7: Mm -hmm.
0: Where does this put him in terms of great current golfers? Because he's won the most PGA Tour titles out of any current golfer playing other than Tiger Woods and Phil Mm. Mickelson.
5: Yeah.
0: Is he underachieved in his career?
5: Oh, for sure. And I mean, I think... This this whole question. I mean, you can answer it a number of ways. Clearly, on the PGA Tour, this is his thirteenth straight season where he's recorded a victory. So, by that metric, he's clearly one of the best players in this current era. However, you know, Dustin Johnson is going to be remembered in the same way that Greg Norman is remembered. Greg Norman is not remembered for winning the Milwaukee Open in the nineteen nineties. He's remembered for being the consistent guy that when you gave him a lead in the final round of a major championship he would find the trees and the water where he didn't even think there was water. He would, honestly, the crowd, they used to, you know, they used to shout at him and just shout four before he hit it because he used to just on the last few holes. In 1986, Greg Norman had the lead in all four of the major championships and won one. Now, Dustin Johnson will be remembered as the guy who stood on the first tee in 2010 at the US Open with a three-shot lead and had lost it, was two behind by by the third tee. He's the guy who manages from 15 feet in 2015 when he needs one putt to win, two putts for a playoff to three putts from 15 feet. That's the kind of thing that he'll be remembered for. And ultimately, unless he can put together more major championships, clearly, as you say, in terms of his driving pedigree, he's, he's one of the best. And his wedge game pr- improvements from about 2014-15 made him a mainstay at the top of the world rankings. And he will stay there for another 10 years, I've got no doubt. I mean, he's... Uh, 36, I think now maybe, but I think he's still got another 10 years at the top. But until he manages to convert those major performances, you know, Greg Norman was world number one for years and years and years. But you ask anybody related to golf, it's how he blew six shot leads, five shot leads, all of the yeah. time in the major championships. That's the main thing, you know.
0: I mean, I just think Greg Norman, and I think when Nick Fowler won the Masters, yeah, that's yeah, just, yeah that yeah. just comes to mind. And it's it's a sad state of affairs that you've got to think when you immediately think of somebody. And it comes up that it's a disappointment in their career, but that's just, it's one of those things you're going to, you're going to have players who are going to be unsuccessful and you're going to have players who are successful. That's Mm -hmm. the nature of sports.
5: But that's one of the big blowouts. I mean, to have a six shot lead and to have lost it by the 10th, which I think is what happened. That's, that's something. I mean, even people didn't think he could screw up. So that's, that's the iconic one, but he was also, there were plenty down the, back down the years where he did very similar things, even in 1986, at the Masters, which is the one that people remember about Jack Nicklaus winning it and coming back at 46. You know, Greg Norman was tied for the lead on the last hole. We had a sort of seven iron in hand and sure enough, all he needed to do, hit it in the middle of the green, two putts, and he didn't win a playoff and he hit it so far right. I mean, it's a spot on the 18th that people never vacate. Like, it's almost missed the crowd, which is about 25 deep. So that's what he's remembered for. And Dustin Johnson is the the same until he changes that with more wins in the main So
0: will we say that Dustin Johnson will be remembered as the bottler?
5: Yeah, for sure. Until something changes. Absolutely. I mean, he is, he is, he is our generation's Greg Norman. Um, you know, people, the comparison is going to be made between kepka has got seven wins on the PJ tour. I mean, he did play on the European tour a lot longer than Dustin Johnson, but um, he's put together four major wins and that's in, that's in the space of two years. And that kind of speaks for itself when it comes down to things that people are remembered by, um, you know, Montgomery is kind of remembered, not in the, quite in the same way, Colin Montgomery, but, um, you know Westwood the same, Johnson I think is really of all the players that get get close. Even of Sergio Garcia before he won ma- his major, Johnson has thrown things away which just nobody else has managed to throw away. These are these are I mean to, to three putt when you can have two for a playoff, it, it's, it's it's the worst. It, it's just unfathomable, which is quite strong. But that's that's when you, when you ask me how good he is, I mean he's clearly an unbelievable talent, but. Uh, the ultimate answer, how is he going to be remembered? He's going to be remembered for that. The Travelers Championship, as you say, driver wedge, is no interest to anyone. No. Apart from um, him, because that was a lot of money. But.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he probably took over a cheque for $1.5 million, which none of us would sniff at. <laughs> um, finally, we next week, we move on to Jack Nicholas's Murfield uh, for two yes. tournaments in a row, which is very That's unusual. Right. Um, yeah. How good a chance is Roy McIlroy's sound of winning? one of those tournaments i mean he's been playing he's shot eight he's now since project since we've restarted the pga tour he's shot eight rounds mm. in the 60s
5: yeah but
0: hasn't been able to convert any of them into a win or even a top three five finish
5: mm-hmm.
0: how does he turn that around and win this next golf tournament
5: yeah i'm really grateful that you've managed to skirt the uh, the rocket mortgage mortgage classic which is in detroit this week Rocket mortgage classic. It's no classic. It's been around for two years, but anyway, that will skirt that one. Um, the two, the two events. Yeah. that Jack Nickers course, which is a great course. I mean, I think if you want to see a, a really interesting golf course that offers a lot of different tests lots of different shots, particularly a lot of holes, particularly around the middle of the, the, um, the back nine are modeled on Augusta, particularly the 12th, the par three is modeled on that. Um, in terms of McIlroy, I mean, McIlroy is someone that I go back and forth on and on how good do I think he is. I mean, it kind of comes down to whether you think his game, how multi dimensional his game is. Um, you know, when he's on form, realistically, what wins him is, is straight driving. And, you know, he's never, he's never been a clutch putter, really, if you look down some of the wins that he won. His, his major wins have been, um, he's often won them by many multiple shots and it's because he's just torn a course apart. I don't personally fancy him at Muirfield Village. I know he's put together some good rounds, but he has had a tendency in the last sort of few years. I mean, it's now six years. I mean, I know we've not played major championships this year, but it's six years since he's won a major. In these kind of events, which are the, this Muirfield Village has always been the sort of upper end of the, of the PJ tour in terms of things. Tiger Woods will be coming back for this one in particular, not really interested in playing these, these early events at Colonial or at, um, the Heritage, even less so at the Rocket Moorley Classic. So. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a top quality, top quality event. It also, I actually need to look at the field um, because obviously unique times, but, the Muirfield um, Village often throws up a lot of international winners, actually, more so than other um, uh, PGA Tour venues because it just requires something slightly different. Often a lot of players from the European Tour often go and play at Muirfield Village because they fancy themselves um, around that kind of venue where, again, premium is straight. There are a lot of, a lot of issues off the tee. So, um, yeah, McElroy, I mean, clearly you, you, never, you never discount McElroy. But um, no, I think... I think there are probably other players that, that we have more of a look in uh, at this stage. Thanks, Ed, for discussing
0: golf with me this week. My um, pleasure. We, uh, Ed's going to stick with me to discuss the boxing. Um, we go straight into that with uh, a couple of questions. On, uh, the main fight of Matchroom's boxing bonanza takes place on, the, on August 22nd. Dillian White risking his WBC number one contender status against Alexander Povetkin. It's got to be a joke that White has not yet received a shot against WBC champion. He is scheduled to fight here in February 2021. That would be a thousand days as mandatory challenger. Does the WBC need to get his house in order?
5: Yeah, I'm definitely going to call the lifelines here. No, I think this is an interesting one because I didn't know anything about this, um, this, this, this situation. You're quite right, actually. I kind of think this is something that slipped under the radar. I mean, I'm not somebody who would consider myself a a regular watcher of boxing. I mean, I've kind of developed into it. My consumption of boxing has tended to be Eddie Heard memes, but it's sort of developing into something slightly more sophisticated. I mean, actually, can I play this question back to you? I mean, how has this been allowed to happen? Because as you say, it seems a bit ridiculous for someone to to win a fight and to hold a belt in July 2019 and to still be waiting. I mean, is this Tyson Fury just playing sort of a little bit too hard to get?
0: I think it's a combination of when Deontay Wilder was the WBC champion, they gave him a lot of voluntary defenses, which he didn't, he wouldn't take against somebody like Dillian White, who's a poses a threat to his title. I yeah. think with Fury, he doesn't want to fight more than once or twice a year, and he wants to save those fights for the big unification fights or big rematches. So you've got the uh, Deontay Wilder rematch in um, probably on box, potentially mm-hmm. on Boxing Day in Australia. You've got potentially in May, June, July the AJ fight providing they both get through the mandatory. So I think it's a combination of the WBC giving wilder, too many mandatories, mm-hmm. too many voluntary defences and Dillian white is, and, uh, and is uh, this about Dillian
5: white's image then. Cause that's what, that's what struck me. I mean, my knowledge of promoting and the creation of fights um, kind of circulates around the idea of the importance of the, of the, of the prize fight, if you like the, what makes them preeminent, what makes them attractive as a financial offer is what makes the fights go ahead. Is Dillian White overlooked partly because he's not the same kind of marketable, marketable fighter as, as you say, Wilder clearly is for them to give him so many opportunities?
0: I think that's definitely a case, but I also think, I think that the, uh, what, uh, um, Dillian White uh, will constantly be sort of undermined by the fact that he lost to AJ.
5: Yeah.
0: And that he will why should Dillion White why should uh Deontay Wilder or Tyson Fury face Dillian White when he's already lost mm-hmm. AJ for a world title? I think it's very hard to come back from losing so, sorry, losing the British title, sorry. It's mm-hmm. very hard to come back from losing to a future world champion mm-hmm. and then face another world champion. I think it's gonna be very hard for the likes of Joseph Parker to make that move.
5: Sure. Um but I think... Because also- that was just to answer your... Kind of come back to answer your question. That was my thing. I mean, does it, you asked, does it need to get its house in order? I mean, my honest, obviously my honest answer is I'm not sure, but actually on a level, yeah, that clearly does seem unfair for, for someone to have to wait for a fight to be challenged for that, for that belt. But at the same time, if they're not, if he's lost to AJ, AJ is seen as the kind of, along with Tyson Fury, that's the, that's the fight that people want in terms of British boxing. Is it kind of just sort of that's kind of hard luck, I guess, for, for White. He's just not managed to deliver it on, to beat AJ. If he'd have beaten AJ, we wouldn't probably have you having this conversation, I guess. So that's where I kind of take from a loose perspective.
0: Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree with that. I think that whilst he hasn't, whilst he lost to AJ, I still think he's due his shot because mm. he, he, you get a lot of mandatory challenges who are just, as the quite Tyson Fury, bums, <laughs> And and that is true. I mean, you only have to look at some of the people that um, A, Anthony Joshua's fought who yeah. for, as mandatory. They've really not been great fighters in mm. the grand scheme of things. Obviously, they knocked me out, but that's another thing entirely. Um, <laughs> moving on, in other news, Katie Taylor is scheduled to fight on that boxing bonanza. If she fights full-weight world champion Amanda Serrano, and wins? Will she cement her place as the best pound for pound female boxer?
5: Yeah, I think so. I think I think you answered the, the question. The statement kind of fits the question. I think that's just uh, developed sort of since the Olympics. I think so she's developed such a such a reputation, and she's clearly such a prolific fighter. So, yeah, absolutely for sure. I mean, in, in this kind of lockdown setting, you know, with the with the thing that's being set up, I feel like this. I feel like things that may often get passed slightly under the carpet or pushed under the rug by constant wall-to-wall sport and these kind of events can actually maybe, maybe take a little bit more of a spotlight than they probably would get in terms of coverage. And I think actually the statement um, I think is, is completely true. I think, I think so. And I think actually you'll get a lot more recognition if she manages to deliver, to deliver on that. And in terms of women's boxing, it's now
0: becoming sort of quite mainstream now in terms of the sense mm. that it's being promoted by Matchroom quite consistently. You've got the likes of Clar- Clarissa Shields boxing, who's also an undisputed world champion. Do you think the fact that the boxing was introduced at the Olympics has helped to increase the profile of professional bo- female boxing?
5: Oh, absolutely. I think when it comes down to, to, to in- improving women's sport, one of the, the most important well, not actually necessarily improving it, but increasing access. One of the most important things is establishing, like, fans establishing relationships with the personalities themselves, and that's true across all sports. I think the Olympics, the way that that was set up, that was a new thing uh, in 2012, and yeah, I think it captured the imagination because it was, everyone imagination was captured and I think it was something that wasn't on everyone's radar and it became on the radar. Names, as you have just mentioned, these are personalities that people people cling to. So I think a lot of sports can probably learn um, from the way that boxy's done it and equally the way that, but also the way that Matchroom is, as you say, promoting them is in all, in all of itself kind of symptom and a cause. It's a symptom of the fact that it becomes it's become popular over a period of time, but it also causes it to continue and, and to snowball. And I think that's the that's the really positive thing. And it's great, actually, in this, uh, what she, what's, what's Eddie, Eddie called it, Ma- match, matchroom square garden um, yeah. uh, in, 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 the, in the mansion, um, that that's going to feature there, um, that it's not just going to be geared towards the big fight that obviously you've mentioned at, at the end of August.
0: To be honest, I can't believe that Eddie Hearn grew up there, but it doesn't surprise <laughs> me. Um, I'm not going to ask you who's in our pound-for-pound pound top ten because we could go on about that for days. But what yes. do we make of boxing's best record? 51-0 by Wan-Heng Menayofin? Yes. Um, he's the WBC minimum minim- minimum weight champion, which, as I'm looking it up now, it, he is...
5: Well, I had a good read of this, actually, because I must admit, I, um, I, I hadn't heard of uh, Wan-Heng before, um, and minimum weight is something that, we don't we don't talk about as much, and I think looking from the the fighters fights that um, that he's had, it's partly because it's obviously much more centered in um, the Philippines and Indonesia um, in terms of fighters. He's obviously Thai himself, um, but yeah, I mean, it's an extraordinary record. I mean, fifty four fifty four um, and nothing. It's interesting to see some of the places that he's actually fought as well uh, on on the on the pages, I and mean, he's fought in the from the light infantry, boxing arena, all around, all around, um, all around Thailand. And yeah, I mean, it kind of speaks for itself. Is, it's something that I'd be interested to have a look at. I don't know what you, how much you know about it yourself. It was quite interesting because he retired and then he
0: came back. He, he retired about two weeks ago and then he, oh, see, uh, okay. and then he's come back a week later and so he's not retiring anymore. But what makes it quite interesting is that Golden Boy Promotions have picked him up and think he's the real deal. Mm-hmm. And I feel that because of his record, despite being a minimum weight boxer, he could still uh, sort of sell pay-per-views because of the um, uh, because of his record. Do you agree with that?
5: It sounds plausible. I mean, I think it's all about marketplace. I mean, I don't. I, as I said, I, d- I didn't know about this uh, this uh, about him. I didn't really know about this weight. I mean, it's not something that kind of comes up in terms of British boxing. And I think that's probably as I said, to do with the, to the marketplace within it. I mean, clearly it must be profitable. Uh, I think when you get something, that, that kind of gladiatorial element that he's got around him, the undefeated, um, there is always interest in that because people love an underdog and people like to see how, old oh, the mighty have fallen. And this story would certainly provide that, a lot of scope for that, I'd say. So 54 and nothing, as you say, eclipsing Mayweather. Um, even if it's something, it's maybe something on a boxing front in, in this country that we're not aware of. But I think, I think there would for sure be an and appetite to, uh, to engage further with it. And my final question
0: is, is that Gerald Miller has reportedly failed another drugs test. And I say reportedly. If the results are conclusive, should he be banned from the sport forever?
5: So can you just did, how many more is he, has he as there been before? Because I know we've spoken about this before on Sports Feed. But it's, so it's he multiple, was a, right? he was
0: supposed to face AJ. It, he was supposed to be AJ's opponent before uh, um, he lost his belts to Andy Ruiz Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, so Andy Ruiz Jr. was a late replacement for Gerald Miller, and he got banned for a drugs test. Then he's been banned by the Nevada Sports Commission for this drugs test. Obviously, mm-hmm. he's appealing. Mm. I mean. In my opinion, one drugs test is too many. Sure.
5: Well, I think I think I think I'd agree with that. And I think if you get to a multiple level where drugs tests come in, I think you just undermine the credibility of the sport. And actually, you kind of you undermine the credi- credibility of the spectacle. I think even the phrase you used, pound for pound, you know, that's that's what you get with the attritional idea of boxing. It's it's two two fighters against each other, um, and you know what they have, what their skill set is is what they're going to show and what they're going to be challenged on. And I think when you get in the situation where someone, in any sport, clearly it's a, it's a situation where if someone's cheating, then they're taking an unfair advantage. But particularly in boxing, when the stakes are so high and it is such a, sorry, a quite a violent, aggressive um, spectacle, I think, I think you actually undermine the credibility of yourself as a, as a fighter and actually, as is so important, as we've mentioned, with the, the promotion side of it as a product, I think. Um, as, and as someone that people want to buy into, which they ultimately have to do to, to engage with the, with a sport that is boxing.
0: Thank you, Ed, for that insightful conversation. Um, I'm now going to pass over to Archie to discuss F1 with myself and Luke Power. Archie. Cheers, Ben.
1: Now, by this stage of the year, we should be uh, heading into the, the Formula 1 mid-season break, but of course, just like pretty much every sport, uh, Formula 1 hasn't been immune to the, the effects of, of COVID-19. So we're, we're only gearing up to, to get started this weekend. Now, Ben, just for the, the benefit of our listeners, could you give us a, a little rundown of, of what we can expect with this condensed season?
0: What we can expect, Archie, is that we're going to expect a lot of confusion at the start of races in the sense that we're, we're going to get unexpected results because drivers, whilst they've been on simulators, haven't, and whilst they've been practicing in the old cars, haven't, been racing, if you know what I mean. It takes time to get ready to race. So, what we expect at the uh, at the uh, Red Bull Ring in Austria for the first two races is probably it probably throw a couple of surprises. To be honest, you're likely to get somebody I don't know, like Carlos Sainz or Danny Ricciardo, who would probably finish in the top ten. But might be might be able to get uh, a podium. That's the sort of things we might that might throw up. And sort of the bottom teams, such as Williams and. Uh, uh, and uh, Sauber might, um, might actually um, do quite well in getting the points. That's sort of re- results we can expect.
1: And th- this season, there's an opportunity for a number of records to be broken, Luke, uh, including uh, Lewis Hamilton, who has the, the chance to equal Michael Schumacher's record of seven world titles. Obviously, as, as Ben was saying it's it's quite an unusual season but do you, do you think he's he's got a pretty good chance of equaling that record
2: absolutely yeah i think he has to be the favorite to take the title yet again i mean mercedes have been so dominant over the past few years they have more podiums put together than all the other teams combined in the last season which just shows a partnership of him and bottas you know finishing so often in the top 2 um, in so many races So I think he's definitely the favourite. And I think we're also seeing at the top end certain fragilities in Ferrari. You've got Sebastian Vettel, who's been umming and ahhing about his future. And, you know, maybe he's not fully on board. He was outperformed by Charles Leclerc last season. And you're thinking he's probably coming into a decline. Meanwhile, at Red Bull, though, you've got Verstappen. You've also got, you know, Alex Albon, who's, you know, not really, proved himself in the way he would like to. They uh, relegated Gasly to the Toro Rosso team last season. So beyond Verstappen and Bottas, you don't really see many people who are probably going to compete for the title. So I would say absolutely Hamilton is the one to back.
1: And Josh, as Luke was alluding to there's quite a lot of of instability. You've got the likes of Sebastian Vettel, Carlos Sainz, and Daniel Ricciardo, who are all in the strange position of, of knowing that they won't be with their current teams next season. Do you think that, that this will have much of an impact on, on their seasons?
3: It's going to be interesting, isn't it? Especially now that we've got kind of condensed um, race, race list and we've got a condensed season for Formula One. It's, it's going to be very, very interesting. Um, like you said, those drivers aren't going to be in that seat next year and that might really in my eyes uh, influence some of their decisions that they make out on the track you know Vettel is a very aggressive driver is he going to actually try and push for um push for positions for pride's sake or is he going to do it for the team is he going to be more likely to to listen to team instructions or not because there have been a lot of incidents with Vettel not listening to team instructions in the past and knowing that he doesn't have to face the repercussions of uh of the Ferrari hierarchy at the end of the season I I think there's going to be a lot of 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 controversy in, in these few races and I think it's going to be very very entertaining and I think that whole entertainment factor of of these drivers really are just in it for their pride now, these three drivers. Um, but especially with, with the rest of the grid, a lot of them are keen to prove a point. You know, there's some seats that are open next season that are really enticing. Uh, Ferrari still haven't filled that seat, for instance. Sorry, Ferrari have filled that seat. Um, other teams haven't filled the seats. Um, and yeah, it's going to be very, very entertaining. And I don't feel like um, Formula One's going to miss... The crowds, as much as as much as other sports have, um, obviously, you know, the crowd plays plays a big part in in the celebrations and and the the atmosphere before and, and after a race. But um, these these drivers are, are going to have you know the track that and you know races at, at, um, at tracks that are going to come back and back. And it's going to be very 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 interesting to see. And uh, unfortunately, the, uh,
1: this week as as we're gearing up to, to get started again. Um, well, we should really be talking about the, the forthcoming season, but it's actually Bernie Eccleston's comments that, that have um, been been snatching the headlines. Obviously he's received widespread criticism for, for comments he made in an interview with CNN, in which he said that in lots of cases, black people are more racist than white people. Now Luke, does this highlight to you just how much work is still to be done to achieve equality in, in Formula One, but also in, in sport as a whole.
2: Absolutely. And Bernie Eccleston, he is in such a position of responsibility, even though he hasn't been you know, the CEO since 2017. He was there in that job for 40 years. So people around F1 are going to listen to what he's saying. And what he's saying, quite frankly, is completely wrong. He has to listen to what Hamilton is saying. If Hamilton is saying that in 2007, he was racially taunted by fans at a Grand Prix using blackface, he can't go out and contradict him, even if that was, you know, Bernie Eccleston's personal opinion. You can't have your own competitors feeling uncomfortable competing in the sport. And he, he really needs to be more supportive of those athletes. I mean... I, Can you even name another black racer apart from Lewis Hamilton in history? And I think that just goes to show, and F1 is such an elitist sport. So arguably, it's an issue with society as well. It costs so money to get into in the first place, and we should be trying to increase those opportunities for people who are maybe from less privileged backgrounds as well. So there's still a lot of work to be done, and you just hope that moving forward the officials at F1 will do all they can to listen to the the feedback of Hamilton and, yeah, be more outspoken on the issue.
1: But Ed, on a a more positive note, Mercedes came out today with the announcement that they are going to have black cars for this forthcoming season as opposed to their their usual silver as a signal of their commitment to greater diversity and inclusion um, in motorsport. Just how powerful a message do you think this sends?
5: Yeah, I mean, just to, just to add, actually just to add on that point, I think I think this what this shows is there there are genuine sort of steps within the wider Formula One community. I do think that Bernie Eccleston, and whilst everything that what Luke says is completely true and I'd absolutely endorse it, uh, he is a bit of a basket case. And I think people have often considered him as such. Um, this is a man who you know he, he kind of suggested, I, I think it was about 10 years ago, about potentially uh, the, the sort of the potential positives of Hitler's rule and the downsides of democracy and you know Max Mosley being the son of Oswald, Mosley being in in line with the FIA and things like that so this is actually I think this is something that's lingering on and I do think Bernie Eccleston at 89 years old potentially represents the old way on the way out and as you say I think there's something quite positive in terms of the symbolism and the commitment from Mercedes to not only do this with the cars but actually the the diversity and uh, outreach Support that they've set up in terms of increasing the number of women, but also of, of BAME background. I think there's something genuine, genuinely impressive about that. I think, as you say, you, the guys have said, Formula One is is obviously with money and it's it's supercars in that sense. So I think engaging with rider communities is something very powerful and good for the sports image. I would say.
3: And that, can I just come in on this as well, Archie? Yeah. Because it's interesting that a lot of the things that we've seen from companies and sports teams and stuff has been quite performative um, and you could level a criticism at Mercedes that that is a little bit performative and indeed there could be a criticism of, of Formula One as a wider body that they have set up a, a foundation um, for apprenticeships and scholarships to increase diversity but they've only allocated £804,000 to that fund and at Formula One is a multi-million sport. I mean drivers' contracts are going to be upwards of of that amount for, for every team just about. And it just seems like they're trying to do a little bit. Obviously it's great that these little bits are happening, but you've got to wonder whether they're just doing it for popularity's sake or whether they are actually whether they are actually concerned about increasing diversity in their sport. Because obviously the, the comments of Bernie Eccleston recently suggest that there are a, a large section of, of Formula One supporters and members of, of boards that perhaps are a little bit stuck in their ways. Obviously, it's great that they've, that they've started this, this, their startup fund, but what, what is a million pounds going to do really in the grand scheme of things in a sport that is so elitist anyway?
1: It's a really in- interesting point you raise, um, and Ben, I, w- I was just wondering. Um, well, firstly, how shocked were you by Bernie Eccleston's comments this week, and and also what what can Formula One do to to ensure that it it kind of shakes off this image of elitism and and becomes a, a truly inclusive sport?
0: I was really shocked by Bernie Eccleston's comments. I mean, it's an absolute disgrace what he said absolute disgrace i'm sorry it just is an absolute disgrace and he should he shouldn't be allowed back anywhere near the sport and the uh, uh liberty media group already succumbed said said there is no place in the sport in the future at all in terms of increasing diversity in the sport i think the best it, it the best way to do that is to lower the cost of karting now that might seem a bit odd but that's how people get into the sport that's how people that's sort of like the youth ranks of like a football team so you would you would try and lower the cost of karting in terms of entry fees, in terms of actually having a go-kart, because it's quite expensive. I mean, I remember reading Lewis Hamilton's biography, and so the writer said that his father and mother had to work numerous jobs just to pay for his go-kart. And that's that is, that is that's a sad case of affairs that a lot of people won't, who are talented drivers won't be able to become... Formula One drivers because of the cost of karting. But I think that's the first step to try and reduce the cost of entries, reduce the cost of karting. And that's potentially how we can see more uh, people from uh, black minority and ethnic group backgrounds, and also from uh, more other, diver- other diverse backgrounds coming into the sport and being successful in the sport. By, and I think that's to learn the cost of karting.
1: Thank you very much to all of you for your analysis. Now, the bad news is you'll start with me, but the good news is that I'm joined by Ella Bicknell, who's here to shed some light on the the alterations to Olympic training programs after the postponement of of the Tokyo Olympics. Uh, Ella, like the majority of sports fans, I imagine you were counting down the days to to this summer's Olympic Games. So, Just how disappointed were you when the inevitable was confirmed and, and it was postponed?
7: So the one holiday big holiday of my life was to go to the Beijing Olympics in 2008 and ever since I've been a massive olympic nut like I'll just you just press the red button and you can just spend hours trawling through oh I'll watch a bit of judo oh I'll watch a bit of beach volleyball I like I was really gunning for it this year and like so many audience members really sad it's not going ahead from an entertainment perspective as are so many people for Wimbledon the Euros think any kind of sport um however my heart goes out to the athletes, really. Um, some of them really at top peak fitness. And they've been training for this for decades. And just to think another year, what could happen that year? Injury, setbacks, especially if you're like, you were really on top position to win your discipline. It just allows more time for new people to enter and to overtake you. Um, so um, one example is Katharina Johnson-Thompson, the heptathlete she said, she used the words heartbreaking. And um, Susanna Townsend, who was part of the GB women's hockey team that won in Rio, she said going the 2020 Olympics was like dangling a carrot in front of your face and it being taken away. Um, And I think most of all, coaches are angry. So they have to rewrite training plans. Um, Everything was going at full pelt in terms of training. And then now they have to relax a bit so that they can turn up the dial months before 2021 and that's really hard for them to accommodate.
1: Yeah obviously coronavirus has had such a profound impact on everyone's life and athletes are no exception. Just how difficult has it been for them to to adjust their their training programs to to cope with lockdown?
7: Well it depends on the sport really. Um, I think like Athletics, that's quite easy to maintain. They can close down tracks, and for some countries, they close down tracks just for the athletes themselves, mm-hmm. and so it stops other people from going. Actually, they've got more privacy to train, so it's actually helped in that way. Swimming is a big one where it's a massive, massive setback because of the hygiene issues. Um, so, for example, Ewan Lowe, who's the chief swimming executive in Scotland, says that 2020 swimming is a massive write-off. And um, it all depends on what country um, you represent because the restrictions will be different from country to country. Some are much more lax, which may give them a competitive advantage. Some of them are much stricter. For, for example, Wales and Scotland, they are starting to reopen indoor training, whereas the UK government is not allowing that for England. And Elise Christie, the um, famous uh, speed skater, she's, um, she calls it absolutely backwards, the fact that pubs and restaurants can reopen and not indoor sports facilities, which to her is a massive priority. Um, that is open up to debate. Um, but yeah, that people are really struggling with the restriction. However, there is optimism that things are um, getting back on track now. And there are some athletes that are genuinely really happy for the postponement. Um, a lot of injured athletes, such as Claire, Kerry O. Flatty in Northern Ireland. She's a steeplechase runner. She had a foot injury last September and she, she's really hopeful she'll qualify for 2021. Same with Daniel Hill, another Northern Irish um, athlete, a swimmer. She missed qualification by a few milliseconds. She's really confident she can make qualification for 2021. Um, Yeah, and finally, Becky Downey, gymnast, set to retire um, after this Olympics. She's um, actually, she was quite nervous about retiring and she's got an extra year for her to train for 2021. So she's going to stick it out for another year.
1: And as you mentioned earlier, the fact that it's been delayed for a, for a year, it gives an opportunity to kind of young and up and coming athletes who may, maybe 2020 would have been a little bit too early for them. But the, the fact that it's now a year later, they'll, they'll be sensing a, a real opportunity to go to Tokyo and make a dent. Are, are there any kind of younger names that we should be looking out for?
7: um absolutely the big one i'd say um he's going to be heralded as the new usain bolt the new king of the athletics track and that is armand mondo duplantis from the us he's a pole vaulter and he's only 20 years old and he's absolutely amazing so what part of his advantage is that he's a super fast runner so up to the pole pole vault he runs at 10.57 seconds for a hundred um for 100 meters and that's amazing got the world record in february at 6.17 meters jump um or vault um yeah so he's going to be heralded as the new usain Bolt for the olympic stadium i think
1: yeah he's he's definitely an exciting talent um yeah it's it's quite incredible just i mean i, I think is, is the world record something like six meters and and 20 centimeters it's just it's Crazy, crazy, just to think how, how hard it is. But yeah, he's definitely yeah. he one to, to look out for. Oh,
7: got quite a charismatic bloke as well. He seems cool.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much for your, your thoughts, Ellen. Now I'm going to pass back to, to Ben for the Any Other Business segment of the show.
0: Thank you, Archie. Thank you, Ella. That was a great segment. Um, Any Other Business was a thing that I came up with after being stuck in JCR meetings for so long. But I got bored of them and so I decided to cut, come up with the name Any Other Business. Now this week's Any Other Business has been inspired by my hatred and forced watching of Piers Morgan's life stories and I've asked you guys to um, think of an athlete who you would like to interview and explain why and defend your reasons for it. So let's start, off with as, let's start off with Luke to start off with.
2: This is where maybe I break the protocol and you can say well is he actually an athlete? Because as I sit here with my Liverpool flag around my neck, I can't think of anybody better than Jurgen Klopp. And it's going to sound very queasy, but I think a problem with modern athletes is that a lot of very, very media trained and they are so careful about not saying anything. You ask you know, somebody, are you happy that you scored that try in the last minute? And they'll say, oh, you know, it was a team effort. It was all... It wasn't me, it was the fans. And they give these very rehearsed, um, banal responses to the questions. And I think Klopp completely defies that. And he is completely you know, himself in the face of undoubtedly many people saying, oh, you shouldn't say that. And he's so expressive. He's a funny guy. He'll happily hug the journalists when he's uh, being interviewed by them. And it, it comes across as so genuine. So in terms of who would I want to sit down with for an hour and pretend to be Piers Morgan with, it would have to be him because I think he would give the most insightful words of all And um, besides me being a fanatic Liverpool fan.
0: Thanks, Luke. Now on to Josh. Who, do you, who would you like to interview?
3: Gosh, there, are, there are so many, especially from, from this region as well. I think the North East has so many incredible sporting heroes. Um, for me... I I would absolutely love and adore to, to sit down with one of either Shearer or Keegan for an hour. I'm going to have to go with Kevin Keegan um, for for this one because he he won the the Ballon d'Or. He's the best best player in in world football for a, for a short period of time. He's played all over the globe. He's also managed Newcastle United. That infamous. Rant would be fantastic to, to talk about. And then also his his second coming at Newcastle, um, which had a lot of controversy, uh, took the club to court, um, got the club to admit that it had lied to the fans about its communications, and he's just got a fascinating story of of just being involved in football for uh, sorry, at an elite level for a hell of a long time. And he was a bloody good footballer as well.
0: <laughs> Thanks, uh, Josh. Uh, now, to move on to Ed. Um, who would you like to interview and why? And uh, I've got a feeling this one's going to be quite controversial.
5: Have you? Yeah,
0: I don't know why, I've just got a feeling.
5: Oh, okay. Well, I'll uh, I'll try and write that in. Um, yeah, I think, um, well, apart from the fact that i for starters, you need to inc- improve the quality of content in terms of life stories. I mean, Desert Island Disc is a much better place to start than listening to Piers Morgan. I mean, There's such better content and better interviewers. Um, but um, what I'd love, my, I, have, I do have a fancy of doing a round table with Roy Keane and Jeffrey Boycott. I think that would be a good podcast. Um, but I think the interview that I would do, and given we started talking about golf, and you know, I, not many people are prepared to listen to me rant about golf for very long. But Ben, you. He's still prepared. Uh, so um, I would, I'd actually try to, um, there's a guy who won, he's won two major championships. He's called Angel Cabrera. And uh, he's Argentinian golfer. And, you know, one of the things actually, I mean, just coming back to that, the discussion we just had about um, Formula One. I mean, Formula One has an issue in terms of, as golf does, in terms of its discrimination on a racial basis and a class basis, because of the money that it takes from places all around the world. It's very hard to be, egalitarian and promote equality when you're having Grand prix in, you know, Bahrain and um, golfers just moved to Saudi Arabia. But, and, and actually in golf, most of the golfers remain from, um, you know, the white right, right wing um, country club setting of middle America. That's where many major championships come from. And Angel Cabrera grew up in Argentina in some of the most desperate poverty. Um, I think he was an orphan, actually. I think I'm right in saying. And then grew up with his paternal grandmother, and you know he, he learned to. He was a caddy for many years at the local golf club, and um, he ended up making money by sort of you know sort of challenging some of the very rich people that were playing alongside him. And I just think, particularly in American media, he's often been sort of made a little bit of a mockery of just because he doesn't speak English, because he comes from that that background, and. You know, I'd have to improve my Spanish, but I'd like to sit and have a have a good chat with him because I think he'd have a lot to impart about a got a game which was structured against him succeeding.
0: Thank you, uh, Ed. Controversial,
5: now, love for you was
0: it? Yeah, that was that was good. That was really really good. Uh, move on to Archie now, Archie.
1: Well, I don't think you actually said whether they have to be dead or alive. So uh,
0: no, I didn't. I didn't see. I left that wide open for you. Yeah,
1: guys. in that case, I'm going to go for. Uh, a sporting hero of mine, and and many millions of people around the world, and that's Muhammad Ali. Uh, there's there's not very much doubt about the fact that he's probably the the biggest sporting personality of all time. You know, he is known for his his quick wit, his one-liners, his his charisma. He's probably the, the first real showman of of, of sport. Um, and I think just uh, based on that alone, he'd provide great entertainment value, but the thing i admire most about him is the fact that when he was at the peak of the at uh, the peak of his powers champion of the world he gave up his opportunity to fight um by refusing to to go and and join up um with the, the american war effort in vietnam um for for religious reasons and i just think for i mean you see nowadays especially sports sports people um are quite often very Kind of self-interested. It's all about their furthering their careers and, and making the most amount of money um, as possible. And, and whilst that is understandable, I, th- I think it takes someone of, of real integrity and conviction to actually forego all of that for what, what you believe in. So I just think it would be it would be incredible to interview Muhammad Ali.
0: Thank you, Archie. And finally, but not least, uh, Ella.
7: My sporting hero is also political and also from the 20th century, it's Katherine Switzer, who, for those that don't know, she was the first woman to ever run a marathon and she did it secretly um, at the Boston Marathon in 1967. No women were allowed to compete and she did it on the sly until someone noticed halfway through and a load of men tried to pull her out of the race. And she refused and she kept on running and other runners who disagreed with the sexism uh, shook off these protesters and she finished and so she was the first woman to ever run a marathon and I just think that would be a amazing, she would be an amazing person to interview um, all that scary pressure that she got whilst running that what is actually quite an intimidating race itself, it's historic um, and yeah definitely a feminist icon I'd say. Speaking of um, marathons, um, in the news, London Marathon um, has still not yet been cancelled. It's been rescheduled for October, but the Berlin Marathon scheduled for September. The New York Marathon, usually held in November, and the Great North Run um, held in September. They've all been cancelled, and London hasn't yet, Um, but we'll see if that stands by the end of July. But anyway, back to Sporting Heroes, Catherine Switzer, 1967 Boston Marathon for sure.
0: Thanks. I'd like to thank uh, all my, uh, my co hosts, Archie Hodgson, and also, as well as our regular pundits, Luke Power, Joshua Nichols, Ben Rochford, Gabriel Radus, Ella Bicknell, and Ed Chambers. We've got a packed show for you next week. I've been Sharpie, Arriva Dirce. Thank you.
6: Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio Podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.